and welcome to The Corinne Barraclough Show. In this week's show, I'll be talking to English family care activist and novelist Erin Pitsy. I'm so excited to share her wisdom with you. She's an incredible woman who I'm proud to call a mentor. I've got some new stories to pick apart and I want to shine a light on mental health. September is Suicide Prevention Month and September the 10th was World Suicide Prevention Day. I spoke to Jodie Mayintu, who's a counsellor specialising in family law, grief and trauma. She's currently in lockdown in Melbourne and will share some insights on how to stay sane and protect your mental health. First, I've been sent a collection of stories and poems that an Australian group, the Australian Coalition for Children's Rights to Equal Parenting, is trying to use to raise awareness into alienation and children's rights. I want to read a section to you. As a woman, I know I have much more than equal rights. I know that the system is set up to help me abuse, lie, punish and even murder with no consequences. As a woman married to a wonderful, trusting man, I can betray that trust and easily replace him with another. As a woman, I know now that when he has been replaced, I can claim our home that my wonderful, trusting husband has worked hard for, so I can continue my new life and share that home with the new other. As a woman, I know that I can erase my husband out of his children's lives because I don't want him in mine. As a woman, I know I can abuse my husband, but then lie and claim to be abused by him to gain a DVO, to put obstacles and hinder any prospect of my husband continuing to have a loving, caring relationship with his own children. As a woman, I know that if he wants to fight for his rights, it will cost him lots of money that he hasn't got since I got most of it in the settlement. But still, I haven't got to worry because I get all legal representation for free. Easy peasy. Yay for equal rights. Powerful stuff, isn't it? This is the flip side to the narrative that we're constantly force fed. Those of us who see what's going on, see how broken the system is, must keep speaking up. We must all use our voices. And we must believe that they will be heard by people with the power to make change. Now, I want to draw your attention to this news story about an evil mum from Moreton Bay who has attempted to torturing her three kids, subjecting them to excruciating violence and denying them food for a week during seven months of hell. She abused her children, who were all aged 10 or under, at her Queensland home and pleaded guilty to three counts of torturing them. The children told police they were not supposed to tell them what was happening. Brisbane District Court heard that the children were starved for more than a week at a time. They also faced a punishment called the wall, during which they were made to face a wall with their arms stretched above their heads while being beaten with various objects for hours. The mother's lawyer told the court her actions were influenced by her partner and previous abusive relationships. Her lawyer said she has suffered at the hands of these men in her relationships. Can you just imagine if the genders were reversed here? Would we ever have any empathy for a man who chose to torture his children because of the way he'd been treated in the past? No, because being violent is a choice. 
It's not the fault of violent men that this mother chose to torture her children. She may well have had a difficult past, I'm not denying that, but still, she made a decision to torture, hurt and starve her own children. There is no excuse for that. When will we hold women accountable for their actions? Why is it that society always looks for a man to blame when a woman acts horrendously, not buying it? Women are not all kind, caring and nurturing. Women are equally capable of evil acts and perpetrating violence as men. And on that note, I want to get straight into my interview, which is with the wonderful Erin Pitsy. So my guest today is Erin Pitsy. I'm really, really excited about this interview. I spoke to Erin first several years ago, and I've called her a mentor ever since. Erin set up the first women's refuge in the Western world in 1971 and focused at that point on removing victims of domestic abuse from their abusers in an attempt to break the cycle. Um, she says that she distanced herself from the women's movement when she discovered feminist Marxism base. Um, so I want to get her on and have a chat because I've got lots of things to talk to her about. Hi, Erin. Hello. It's so good to see you. <laughs> ah, it's lovely to see your face because I know you so well. <laughs> yes, and you too, you too. And we've had many messages over the last few years. Yeah, I've read, read all your work. I, I, I'm a huge admirer of yours. Oh, but ditto. I'll never forget the first time that we spoke. I was standing in my apartment and it was meant to be a five-minute conversation and we ended up being on the phone for about an hour. And I said to somebody just now, it was like a, a football stadium of lights going on. Everything that you said resonated so strongly with me. So, um, yeah, I'm really happy to talk to you. Thanks. Tell me about the beginning. You set up the first women's refuge in 1971. Yes. Um, and said that you did yet yeah, you distanced yourself from the women's movement when you discovered feminism's Marxist base. Can you tell me about that? Well, yes. I in, I joined the women's movement, I think like an awful lot of other women across the Western world, because we were told this was going to be equity feminism. Yes. Equality for women. And a lot of men also agreed with that. In fact, most men did. So I I went along with it because at that point in my life, when I wanted to get married, I had to prove to the doctor that uh, I was going to get married before I was allowed to have the pill. And it's those little kind of things that I thought needed changing. Yes. So I went to my first women's liberation meeting in Chiswick, and the woman who hosted it was really hostile. And as I walked up the stairs, I could see these pictures of Mao and uh, Vietnam's women carrying guns and knives. And I looked at it all, and what nobody realised is that my parents were captured by the communists in China, in Tinsin, in 1949, and held under house arrest. So we didn't see them for three years. So I knew an awful lot about communism. And I was very put off. So I walked into this room, and we were a group of very nervous young women, mothers. And you know, For me, I first time I'd ever left my husband babysitting. And I remember um, she said, well, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm here because my husband's away a lot. And I'm lonely and isolated. I want somewhere to meet apart from each other's kitchens. And she just said, your problem isn't your isolation. Your problem is your husband. He, he oppresses you. I remember looking at her and saying, yeah, but for me, it's a luxury to be home with my children. I have choice. Yes. And that, from, that, from that moment onwards, I decided I was going to really find out about this movement. 
So I went and helped to do, to do secretarial work. In, they had an office, Women's Liberation Office, in Shaftesbury Avenue in London. And my yes. children were at school, so I'd go up there and I'd, I'd, I'd join in with everybody. And I realized very quickly it was actually very little to do with women or what we wanted. It was far more an extraordinary idea. Uh, and I was listening to all these arrangements that were being made. And the first thing that happened was a big women's march in 1970 with probably two or three. And, and that's an exciting prospect until we all got on this march and I was driving a white van so I could, uh, uh, and hot soup and bread for the children. And there were so many men in the march, I couldn't think why it was called a women's march. What you saw were Lenin posters, Trotsky's, Maoists, and all, the whole lot, what I called nasties in the woodshed, and I couldn't see what they were to do with us. So I began to question all this, especially in these great big collectives. They had these huge conferences. And I remember these women standing on stage saying, marriage is a dangerous place for women and children. And I and my friends who were in our little group stood up and said, that's absolute rubbish. You know, we're happily married. We want to be married. We believe that people should be married if they want to have children. And it's a commitment. In the end, I got booted out. And so I went off and opened a little community centre with other people locally, women, and, and so we could meet together and work in our communities. And then one day, Kathy came in. She was the first woman. She just took her, her blouse off, and she was blue from her neck down to her waist. And she said this thing. She said, no one will help me. And that's what did it for me. I took her home that night because we, the house, little house that we had wasn't set up for anybody. And from that moment onwards, it was like, like, like um, it was extraordinary. People, women just started to pile in. Yeah. And more and more women came with their children. That's how it began. Yes. And so you say that the women's aid movement at that point, militant feminists made it clear that men were the enemy. What was the mood like in the room? You talk about those big conferences and lots of women there. It sounds to me that if those things were said today in 2020... That's kind of like the mood of society. But was there much pushback back then? Were people surprised to hear that? Did it sound all very strange to yeah. you? Well, what happened was very interesting because the majority of women who joined thinking it was equity feminism left yeah. because you had to pay £3.10. Now, for a housewife, that's a lot of money in the early 70s. Yes. £3.10 to join. And then what would happen is you'd be organised in groups in your house. You were to ask your friends to come together once a week and then you were to in quotes raise your consciousness and call each other comrade well by that time we had a group we were called the gold hot group we mostly drank lots of wine and gin and tonics and and bitched about things but but as far as we were concerned this was absolute nonsense so what happened is they, they overnight they started to lose women they just all fell away because it was too extreme yes so Isn't what happened so when I, after I'd opened the refuge for about, about the, well, till 1974, so I had about three years, where I almost from the very beginning said the first 100 women that came into my refuge, 62 of them were as violent or more violent than the men they left. So I, I, I said from the very beginning, this is not a gender issue. This is essentially a generational family issue. And I knew for, well from my own background, it was my mother who was the most violent in the family, and my father was dysfunctional and a bully. 
But if you looked at my grandparents either side and the great-grandparents, you could see the violence coming down through the generations. Yes. When we did the questionnaires with mothers, they were three-generational questionnaires. So it became very obvious. But nine, my big worry, and it happened, that by 1974, the women's movement was absolutely out of, out of money, but it was also out of attention because it was very fashionable for a while and then it just all fell away. And they wanted a cause and they needed money. And in 1974, there was a, a small conference called by us, Naive Old Us, and what happened was that they voted themselves into the National Federation of Women's Aid and took over the entire narrative of domestic violence. Because one of the first things that you said to me was, you do know that moral violence is a myth. Can you t Do you think the whole narrative is a setup? Did you see it straight away as being a, a trauma issue and generational trauma? I knew. I knew from the very beginning, and I kept trying to say this. But, I, but what, what I was realising, and this is why I was so afraid, that I knew the time would come when I'd hear the heavy tramping boots of the gender feminist movement, and what they would do as they hijacked the entire discussion was to actually tie it into the idea that it's all women are victims of male violence and then tie it into the word patriarchy, which actually, if you think about it, it's meaningless. Yes. But what, yeah. Sorry. In the Western world, it's a myth, yeah. And the, as far as the as domestic violence is concerned, it's passed on from generation to generation through children. Now, you can, as a child, trans transcend. Uh, but yeah. children coming to our refuge with good, healthy mothers who by accident got into violent relationships were much more likely to transcend than those children who were coming into the refuge whose mothers were as violent as their fathers. And our job, as we saw it, all of us actually, at good all the mothers, was that we had to learn to how, how to transcend really what I call strategies for survival. In my family, my strategy for survival was to be extremely violent. I wrote a book called Infernal Child, and I was a dangerous infernal child. My sister was much more of a, I call a hibernator. She'd implode, and, she, and she'd end up with migraines and awful, awful eczemas and all those stress illnesses. And my brother, unfortunately, he, was, he became violent. And so to me, it was so imperative that we do not end up demonizing men and, and boys and creating this, this concept of totally weak women who had no agency and no choice over their behavior. Yes. We're not victims. We've never been victims. Erin, talk to me about your mother. I'm really interested in this, but I can relate to this. Tell me about your family dynamics. So you say that your father was a bully and she, um, your mother was violent. Particularly violent to me, because I looked like my father and she hated him with passion. Now, th this is what's interesting in relationships. In their case, he was a six foot four boy born from an Irish violent family, 17th child. So my grandmother had 17 children. Yeah. He fought his way into an English grammar school, which is the state schools, and then on into the civil service, and he was brilliant. But unfortunately, he couldn't change his behavior. And then he, then he moved into the foreign office and was sent abroad to China, where he met my mother. His behavior, unfortunately, had always been very dysfunctional. But he was so brilliant. He was a brilliant 
um, observer, and they, he, he was, became an old China hand, an absolute expert on Chinese politics, which is why I knew so much about communism. Uh, my mother was far, was very different. She came too. It's her stepmother who was so violent. Her mother died in childbirth. But what happened with her is she was a cold, hard, narcissistic woman. And she married my father for his status because that time he was in the foreign office and he was obviously earning well and they were living very luxuriously in China, in Tsingtao to begin with, and then Shanghai. Now, she essentially only ever wanted a boy child. To our horror, she had twin girls. So what would happen then was that, to my father's surprise, the moment she had us, she disappeared off with, with her luggage to visit all her friends and just abandoned us and didn't come back for about a month. But that was very much her pattern. When your either parent, particularly a mother, is a narcissistic exhibitionist, they make very dangerous parents. Because for a start, they can be very charismatic. As long as they're the centre of attention, uh, they're, 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 they will glow and shine and this wonderful charisma comes up. But behind the front door, they're a nightmare because their rage is terrible. And so what do you think about this myth now that that is a male personality trait? That would be now classed as toxic masculinity. Well, no, it's, it, it, you, can't, you can't define human behaviour uh, as either male or female. It's not. It's a human yeah. It's, yeah. you know, it's when you have a neglectful, cold mother, uh, what you tend to get is whether boys or girls are both affected just as much, and some will also continue to become narcissistic exhibitions themselves. Yes. In your book, um, Prone to Violence, you wrote, to my amazement, nobody seemed to genuinely want to find out why violent people treat each other the way they do. Those words, your words, made me cry when I first read them. They sum up so beautifully why I'm so concerned about the relentless narrative and throwing money at flawed, gendered organisations. Do you think any progress has been made or do you think we've gone backwards? I think that I, what I can see now are really good green shoots. What I, what's happening now in England and hopefully in Australia, uh, what's happening now is that Next year, there's going to hopefully be a conference in England. Now, in the last few years, there have been young women taking PhDs on domestic violence and looking at evidence-based research. And this will throw up the fraudulent misuse of money across the Western world for the last 50 years. Next week, year is the 50th year. It's an anniversary of when I first opened. And hopefully that conference will bring it to the attention internationally across the world, because these are women from absolutely excellent universities. And one of the problems is no government has ever asked the women's aid movement or refuge, the other one as it's called here, to account for anything. Not how many women go out, how many return, all the things that are absolutely necessary to know whether it's working or not. And sadly, Erin, all of that, not just the money is wasted, but the time is wasted. We haven't helped we haven't helped fix or address the problem. And that's what made me so upset with your quote. Nobody seemed to genuinely want to find out why violent people treat each other the way they do. That trauma, we've just left people for the last few decades sitting in that. We haven't actually found any solutions because we've been pursuing the wrong 
strategy? It, because what happened is that the governments accepted women's voices, like Women's Aid and Refuge here and in Australia. I mean, as an example, in the early 70s, I was invited to New Zealand to help open refuge there. And I was to go across to Australia. Elsie, I think, was your very first refuge to be opened. But when they heard what I was saying in New Zealand, my ticket was torn up. Because even at that point, Elsie was run by a lot of many of the women running the refuge were a very radical lesbian group of women. Yes. And, and the idea to take that they should ever consider that men would ever be victims of anything was anathema to them. And also it's a huge money pot. I think it's something like 300 million in England a year goes into, into the refuge and women's aid. And it's as much, much everywhere else. And as you say, they're throwing money at a completely fraudulent... If, if in the next 20 years or so, you look back and you wonder why it was allowed to happen. That was the inspirational Erin Pitsy. There's actually a lot more of that interview, which we don't have time for in this show. But launching today is the new Good Source members section. This full interview is available for all Good Source supporters. Can I encourage you to help support production of my show by becoming a monthly supporter for five, ten or more dollars per month, whatever you can afford and while you can. Now, let's talk mental health and family law. Jodie Mayintu is a counsellor specialising in family law, grief and trauma. She's currently in lockdown in Melbourne and I had a chat with her to get some insights on how to stay sane and protect your mental health. So my guest today is um, Jodie Mayintu. I'm really looking forward to chatting to her. She's a counsellor specialising in family law, grief and trauma and she's currently in lockdown in Melbourne so I'm looking forward to talking with her and she's going to share some insights about how you can protect your mental health basically let's have a chat with her and see how she's doing hi buddy. <laughs> thanks so much for talking to me today so you're a mental health counsellor based in Victoria tell me what's the mood like down there right now Oh, it is um, one of despair, I have to say. It's um, very heavy, um, unfortunately, for the announcements that came out, um, not just within my own household, but with many other households that I've spoken with. Um, the fact that Sunday, the announcements, I was barraged with lots of text messages, private messages, um, very conscious though that people knew that it was Father's Day and that I had my husband there and we wanted to sort of keep it peaceful but there was this despair this hopelessness this this I think betrayal would come up because people really looked towards the 13th of September as an opportunity that there was this like hope there was this this little candle in a big little dark tunnel that we were all walking towards and when the announcements happened, I believe that what overcame people was, hang on a minute, I feel betrayed. Yeah. What, what do you mean that I'm not getting out of here? What do you, what, how is, please explain it to me. And it was one that just became, the, you know, when I talk about anger, lots, lots of people were angry. But if I was to think about anger in, in the concept that I do with mental health, 
it's anger is a second emotion. So it's never really the forefront emotion. So if I looked at anger and I could name, there were feelings of people with despair, isolation, pain, confusion, betrayal, grief, loss, all of those things contributed to anger. You know, mm -hmm. anger, people believe that anger is this situation where it's just, we're just ropeable, you know, or we're enraged or something like that. But anger doesn't always come forth like that. And I think that the announcements on Sunday really had people sort of feeling that anger coming through and feeling, when's this going to end? Because so there was a date. Yes, yeah, exactly. Well, it's moving the goalposts, which is always like the most frustrating thing you can do to human beings, isn't it? Yes. But were you watching it live on Sunday? Tell me how you felt listening to Dan Andrews, like literally giving those announcements that lockdowns are continue for weeks and weeks and weeks. I felt, I have to be honest, the tears rolled. The tears rolled down my cheeks because I'm a very sensitive person. So it wasn't even just that I was feeling this for my own family. I was feeling it for my clients. For, I was feeling it for every single person that I'd spoken to over all of that course of time that we've been in this um, situation from March through to now and people that have, you know, come and sought therapy and people that are not seeing their children. You know, I, I felt that heaviness and I, I could feel that betrayal because it was like the rest of the probably the state. I was walking through a tunnel and I could see a light and I wanted to get to the end and there doesn't seem to be an end. I, I'm People might argue with that with me and say that's ridiculous. There is. Um, I'm, I've read the plan and I, I don't see that there is. I, I'm not sure how we're going to get down to five um, so that we can open up. Um, so it was despair. Yes. What are you doing to look after your own mental health right now? So I tend to not subscribe to news. I, I just, just one of those things that I find it not helpful. I don't want to be um, inundated with negative activity. If I want to look for something, I go look for it. And I say that to my clients as well. Don't go and subscribe to these, to your Facebook or your social media flooding with news. You know, only have a trinkle of it or go look it up if you want to know an answer because then you're not just, you know, being barraged by a certain news media, you're able to get a sort of a more conflict view on things. I ensure that I acknowledge all of my emotions, that I don't sit there with all the happy ones. I'm not in, I'm not the sort of person that will go around, you know, thinking that the world's a big glitter bomb or, you know, we should have just feel positive and happy joy. Um, I am a realist and so it, it takes more energy and emotion if we don't go and adapt to those very uncomfortable emotions so I'm very aware when they come over me to just allow them to flood and but also aware that I know that they can't harm me as much as they feel like they can because you know awkward horrible emotions that come up you know we've got to remember that they could be a flood of words or they could be a flood of pictures but they also can be sensations throughout the body and I think that as I'm attuned to that and I try and teach others to be attuned to that as well, just to understand that even though the emotion's really bad, it won't, it's not 
detrimental to controlling every aspect of your life. Does yeah, I hope that makes sense. It does make sense. Yes, it does. And tell me, you do a lot of work with men and in the family law space in particular. Are you concerned about the delays that COVID is going to cause within the system? Yes, absolutely. I, um, I I see it now. It's it's not it's it's in the forefront now. There are many clients that I have that have been denied seeing their children because of COVID. You know, COVID's been used as an excuse. Oh no, you can't have you know little Johnny because you need to go and get tested, even though this person's not at all feeling symptoms or anything. It just seems like another control and power play and it's concerning because it's the children or the child that actually gets caught up in this. They're going through enough. They're going through the fact that they can't go to school um, and then to be not denied having contact with a particular parent, that's just not on. So, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a situation where we are going to see a flood of contravention applications coming through the family law system because people are saying, hang on a minute, or there might be new applications too because, you know, parents that were getting along and doing a parenting plan, suddenly this fear of this COVID has just wiped that out and then suddenly people are going into court to have to try and get some sort of order back into the situation. So, yeah, I'm very concerned that it, the system was already at its peak. It's yeah. now going to be overflowing. And you've also been through the family law process yourself, which I've spoken to you several times about. So tell me, what do you think? I know this is a huge question. <laughs> what do you think are the key failings within the system? Oh, gosh, do I have how many? How long have I got to talk? <laughs> um, the key failings. Oh boy. Um, so the, this would be one of them would be the fact that we children are not seeing parents, but those parents continually have to pay child support. So they're being withheld a child for whatever reasons, whatever that may be. And, and I'm not talking about the violence or, you know, abuse or any of those sorts of things. I'm talking about situations that have just I don't want you to see them um, I'm the superior parent or I'm not going to allow that to happen so I'm very aware that that happens consistently so if a child is being withheld from another parent child support should stop and I have no doubt that the moment that if that was ruled in there we'd have a free up family law system because mm -hmm. nobody would want those payments to be stopped they'd be like oh no I'd be pushing Johnny to go and see the other parent so that I could ensure that I got my payments, you know, and I'm not against child support. I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I just think that it is abused uh, in a way that, you know, we've got so many parents not seeing children, but yet their other parent is receiving the payments and I'm not sure how that's fair. So that would be one, one of number one things that I would change. So actually what you're talking about then, you're basically saying that parental alienation on either side and child support are two of the kind of biggest recurring, are they problems that you repeatedly see in men that you're counselling? Yes, yes it is. It's, it's, it would be 
probably I'd have to say 70% of the people that I see are in those sort of situations. They are in situations where they haven't seen their children or didn't know their rights or, or didn't know their children's rights, not their rights, because it's about the child. It's about the child being able to have a meaningful relationship with both of their parents. And to be denied that, it's it's so catastrophic because it will absolutely damage this child going forward you know we know no no one wants a child to have to recover from their childhood and when we've got a parent withholding a child doing that oh boy that's just catastrophic I I grew up in an like yourself Corinne I grew up in an environment where I was withheld contact from my mother for 10 years and there was a lot of questions that I wanted answered when I got to an adult and it really it broke that relationship with my father when in well into my adult years um, because there were so many lies that came unraveled and you know so absolutely parental alienation is something that I see quite often and I don't understand it because if people got a grasp on how this affects a child and how it goes into their adult lives I'm pretty sure that people would go no way I'm not going to do that you know, because I know that parents love their children. Yes. It's really interesting, though, Jodie. You know, when I first wrote about contacting my father for the first time, I was inundated with messages from people saying, how does it feel? It must feel like such a relief. Um, and it's kind of like, well, life is not a Hollywood movie. The damage is done. I've spent decades believing that I was unlovable and my father walked away from me. That's what I was led to believe. And the damage literally eats away at your very core of your being. Um, and it's not then suddenly that when you find out the truth and you find out what really, you know, what went on, that suddenly a, a magic switch is is flicked and, and all of that damage isn't done. Life just doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Listen, I'm interested to also talk to you about stress because we're obviously in a really... Uh, stressful, overly stressful situation right now. Talk to me about what goes on with our brains and our bodies when we're stressed. Obviously, when we go through like a relationship breakdown, we're in a place of grief. Yeah. Which means that our emotions are heightened. How does this actually impact us and the way that we think? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question because it brings me into something I love talking about, and that's our nervous system. And because I find this a key component when I work with people to have them try and understand what's going on in their mind and in their hearts, in their nervous system. You know, how, why, why am I reacting the way I'm reacting? Why am I unable to cope? Why is this not so simple? And, you know, you did say um, people are going through the stages of grief and loss because they've lost a relationship. So what happens is that, if I can simply explain it, is that our nervous system, which is a spine that runs at the back of our um, neck, it's called, we call it the polyvagal theory, and it's kind of like a ladder system. And a lot of people that might be going through you know, separation, and a lot of people right now that might be in Victoria, might be feeling this as well, the fight and flight. We're in fight and flight, and that's exhausting. I call that survival mode. A lot of people, you know, sitting in that middle component of the polyvagal where they're in survival mode. We call that sympathetic. 
it's there to protect us. It's there to alarm us. It's not there as a bad thing because it's designed to hey say, hey, you know, that thing over there, that's kind of scary. Don't go over there. So it's that, you know, way it's supposed to be. But what happens is when we are in situations like we are currently in Victoria or if we're going through a separation and a breakup, our fight and flight will just go off, 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 off all the time. It's like a smoke alarm in your house. It just goes off and it never quietens. So we can get intrusive thoughts, we can get assumptions coming in and we can just be absolutely exhausted. And what happens from that place, if we don't deal with it, we can drop and we drop into a place called dorsal. And this is where a lot of people might find depression because in dorsal we aren't mobilised. We aren't able to get up to the top of that ladder, which we call ventral, the happy place, the place where we kick goals and we make dreams. Um, and dorsal, you know, I describe it um, in myself as the maze that has endless corridors and no windows. It's, it's, it's like you're crawling along trying to work out why you can't be mobilised. And so having that concept and, and how our brains react to stress is is vitally a huge key for people because they're able to go, wow, yes, that's it. That's how I felt. So how do I get up out of this dorsal? How do I climb back up, Jody? Like, how do I find to move back up? And you know, and that, it's like a light bulb moment for people to understand how stress works within our brains and um, and to be able to be mindful of the states that we're in in um, polyvagal, mindful that our, you know, we could be in fight and flight and you would know if you're in there because you are on edge, your anxiety, you might be finding your breathing um, is up, your heart's racing more, um, you're unable to sort of untangle thoughts, the thoughts become intrusive and you are just in this place of not knowing where to go it's lots of confusion sometimes in sympathetic um if, if you're not tapping into the factual side of sympathetic and how i do that is i usually try and get clients to do a pros and cons list i'm a bit of a list person and um that helps to sort of sort out what's going on up here but being aware that if we stay in survival sympathetic for too long and we drop into dorsal that's where it should be concerning because a lot of people don't know how to get back up. Yeah. So interesting talking to you. Look, just one last question before I let you go. I have, I, well, I read actually something really worrying, I think, um, over the weekend about the waiting times, the waiting times that people are waiting currently for to, to actually access help and get mental health support. And they're talking about 12 weeks. Like, that's just un, unhelpful, isn't it? Like, tw- that's three months. I had a absolutely not look. I had I've had clients that have rung the the call centres and they've been put on hold. Do you know that when someone's in a fight and flight mode or they're just in so much anxiety, being placed on hold is not an answer. And I get why they're on hold because they're overloaded. Yeah. But the Victorian government had at their their back of call six thousand trained professionals like myself, psychotherapists and counsellors, that would be able to ease that load. But we mm-hmm. haven't been asked to come on board. 
we have not been asked to sort of, yeah. So it's it's really distressing when I hear that Headspace has got a 12-week wait when there are amazing counsellors and psychotherapists that are government accredited, that are part of an association, that have followed all the government rules that are required of us and that are constantly upskilling. That's part of our regulations. We have to constantly be educating ourselves. And they're at the beck and call of the government. Here we are and they're not being utilised. So that, that upsets me to hear that there's a 12-week wait, um, and, and I'm not surprised. You know, we had... Have you not been contacted at all by the government? You haven't been asked? Nothing? No, no. So the ACA, I, I'm part of my association, and we received, you know, emails where, where they're, they're sort of, you know, cheering us on to the government to say, why aren't you utilising the trained professionals that we have at our doorstep yeah. and placing them under Medicare to ease that load of our colleagues, our psychologists and our psychiatrists that are overloaded right now? Like mm. Beyond Blue right now um, have interrupted a, a um, and I'm not sure if you knew this, Corinne, um, they've got a, a situation where they've, I think it's called NGA, and they've gotten coaches on board, coaches yes. that have been coach for six weeks in CBT. I've been trained for three years. So that's yeah. a concern. And it really winds it winds me up, Jodie, because then you see, like, a, you know, you'll see in a media conference, you've got the health minister, you've got the prime minister, and people are talking about mental health, and they're talking about how concerning it is. And, they're <laughs> and yet there are practical things that... The specifically the Andrews government should be doing, could be doing and should be doing in Victoria to safeguard people and help um, practical on the ground support for men people's mental health. Mental health isn't this like mystical thing that happens when we're all kind of sleeping. It's a gradual creep of stress and a creep into depression or anxiety when life becomes overwhelming. And yet, I just think it's heartbreaking for people to hear people who are desperate for help. There are people that could help them, but the government isn't doing what's required to enable that. It's, it's wrong, isn't it? it? It's so wrong. And, you know, and people are not working. People's jobs, they're small businesses, they're not working. So having to pay for my service, that has to come out of their pocket. So they're not yes. even able to get from a Medicare plan. And absolutely, they've got a zillion psychologists and psychiatrists but they're overworked, like you said, yes. 12 weeks. Yeah. Jodie Mindy, thank you so much for talking to me. We'll catch up again super soon. Before I go, I just want to mention that there's a bill circling that would reform shared parenting. Liberal MP, yes, Liberal MP, Bridget Archer, is backing a bill which would see the assumption of equal parenting taken out of the Family Law Act. Labour MP Graham Perrett is moving the bill. He says the change would help to ensure the best possible outcome for children. This is really dangerous ground and anyone who cares about the family unit should be alarmed by this. The Australian family law system must support separating mums and dads to be the best parents they can possibly be and share responsibility for raising their children. Fierce feminist ideologues will try to push hard on the anti-men domestic violence narrative and try to ensure that children must remain in the care of their mother. This is not true. 
Remember the news story I highlighted at the beginning of the show about the evil mother who's pleaded guilty to abusing her own children? Remember Erin Pitsy talking about her own abusive mother? These stories are not rare. They may be taboo, but they're not rare. The fact is, children are not always better off with their mother, and we must all push back and say the family is important. Mums and dads are important. Men are not the enemy. There are many good men who are incredible fathers, and frankly, the family is not the enemy either. Anyone who stands for genuine equality is not an anti-father. Anyone who stands for true equality is not anti-shared care. Be aware of the stakeholders in this discussion and what's ultimately at stake. Intensifying the war between men and women is not helping children and it's certainly not in their best interest. Right, that's enough Barraclough for now. See you next week. The Corin Barraclough Show is a production of The Good Source, hosted by Corin Barraclough. To watch, listen to or read more new media without the social justice warrior narratives or politically correct fact filter, visit goodsource.news. That's good, S-A-U-C-E dot news. Become a Good Source supporter for exclusive access to live and unedited interview recordings, including the conversations before and after the show. 